Hi, I'm Sarah from The Upcoming, I'm features editor there, and, and just to quickly introduce and welcome you here to the ICA for this screening of Fadia's Tree. Without further ado, um, I'd love to introduce to you the, the filmmaker behind this incredible, moving documentary, Sarah Beddington. Maybe a good place to start would be kind of the genesis of the project. Maybe if we, um, you know, you cast your mind back to, to that moment when you met Fadia, um, when she leant across the table in the cafe. And as I believe it, you know, you, you um, hadn't even intended to make a documentary film before this. So not only your, your documentary feature debut, um, but you hadn't even thought about making a film. So tell us a bit about how it all came about those 15 years ago um, and to, it came to be the film that we see today. I trained as a visual artist and that's what I was being, just minding my own business, being an artist, making small artist films that were being shown in galleries and um, someone here in the room who has been instrumental in many things is Sasha Craddock, um, who I did a show with in 2008 at a solo show at Bloomberg Space. And, um, and it was actually that show um, where I had production money um, that sort of helped me to start making this film. But I'd gone to an arts conference in Beirut and just with artists from all around the world and it was my very last day and I was a bit fed up of being an international artist, just being with an artist group. I wanted to feel this place where I'd, I'd never been to that region of the world before. So um, I went down to a cafe by the sea just to have a quiet moment on my own and watch the sea. And, um, yeah, and then this woman reached across and said, are you happy? And that was, uh, was a huge moment. And then I, then I went, I was living in New York at the time. I went back there, um, but we stayed in touch. I got a call um, from the CIA at one point saying, is it you making all these calls to Lebanon? <laughs> Um, but I, we stayed in touch. Then I was invited to go and stay, and um, when I said, well, what could I do that might be useful, um, Fadi said, why don't you come and make a film about our situation? And I said, well, I don't really do that. That's not, you know, that's not really who I am or, or what I do, but I'll give it a go. And I did go with a very tiny camera, and I shot some material, and I showed it to Sasha here in the room, and then a few days later, I got an email from her saying, well, yeah, it's interesting what you've done, but would you like to do this solo show? And um, which was partly about material that I'd shot from, from the camp, but not entirely. It was previous works as well. Um, but through that, I got a better camera because I had, the first time in my life, had decent production money, which was amazing. And I went back and I went back and I went back. But, and that was the beginning. And the, the other thing that, um, that really stood out to me is that it's a very female-led film, and mm. not only because it, you're telling Fadia's story, but also it's kind of through the prism of this, this friendship the two of you shared, um, you as a filmmaker and, of course, then working with your producer. So um, on, on the one hand, I wondered if that presented any barriers to you because I know the documentary filmmaking world is notoriously difficult to get into and can be very male-dominated. Um, but then on the positive side, whether you, you know, what do you think that that brings to telling this story, the fact that it is through this female lens? Um, I think, in, in a way, it was such a solitary journey for me until I met 
Susan, um, the producer of the film, that I and I didn't. I did. I did a lot of funding applications. I did a lot of um, pitching at different festivals and things. And I felt it was more the subject matter that was holding it back than my sex. Um, perhaps that people wanted the film about the birds. You know, there were TV people who said, "Why don't you just make a film about the birds?" And I said, well, that's not why I'm making this film. I'm making this film because it's about Fadia and her community. And um, so uh, so there was that. There was the subject matter to get over more than anything, I think. But, yeah, I think it does have a very female sensibility and that, you know, we formed a sisterly friendship, which is, you know, we talk to each other at least once a week still. Um, and we're very close. And... And the whole team um, during post-production, really, the close editing team was, was me, Susan, and our editor, Ariadna Faccio-Vilas. So uh, there was, yeah, it was all female perspective, except, except in the sound department, I have to say, which we do have to say, an amazing sound by a uh, Palestinian um, hip-hop artist and electronic composer, Makata, who did the score from scratch, and Stefan Smith, who did an amazing job with the sound design. Um, well, I think now, should we, should we open up to the audience? I don't know if anybody has a question they'd like to ask. Hi, I'm interested in the the story choices that you made, and like when it became apparent to you that birds was going to be this amazing metaphor to convey the story, and it actually has so much emotion. You you kind of were you so used to seeing um, and kind of having the stereotypes of refugees, but then if you you, you bring that in, and it and it kind of sheds a new light on it. So when did you decide that that was going to be something you would explore? And was there anything that you did? You have any other choices that you thought, no, that's not going to work, and this is the this is the one for this story, other than obviously the wonderful metaphor of the tree. Uh, yes, there were other thoughts of of how to uh, mythology was one actually. Um, I was very interested in in I am very interested in in myth, um, but there was still a bird involved. But there was a, a, there's the um, Egyptian myth of um, Isis and Osiris. And Isis takes the form of a bird when her husband, Osiris, is chopped into um, 28 pieces. I th- no, maybe 13 pieces, my lucky number, uh, and spread all across the land. And she becomes a hawk and she um, she she captures the, the, the pieces of the broken body and brings them together. And with the flapping of her wings, she breathes life back into the body. So I, I sort of went along that way for a bit, but then that just became too esoteric and far away from Fadia. So, um, but it was very clear that the birds, because I was interested in the aerial perspective and the mapping, and that as soon as I heard the importance of the birds in the region, I felt that was, and how the trajectory of the birds seemed to be able to reconnect people and place that had been separated and fragmented. I didn't then need the Egyptian myth. They were already doing it. They were already gently flapping between people who wanted to be somewhere but couldn't. And um, they were gathering up all all these places and people in their their wake somehow. And I just, it just seemed clear that, that they were what were needed. 
Um, well, I think on that note, I'll just say a huge thanks and congratulations to you again. Thank you for showing all those wonderful insights with us and for making this really unique, um, beautifully made and an incredibly moving documentary. And, and thanks to you all again thank for you. coming and for your, for your really wonderful questions. So thanks a lot. My name's Karen Davis and I work for the United Nations Regional Information Centre and I'd like to welcome you this evening on behalf of the United Nations and Doc House to the screening of the Supreme Prize. After the screening there will be a Q&A with the director Joanna Lipper and Funmi Ionda who is a broadcaster, journalist and blogger. The Q&A will be moderated by Aika Anya who is the co-founder of the Nigeria Public Health Network and TEDx Houston events. So please sit back, relax, enjoy the evening. So Joanna, um, very complex country, very challenging, very strongly patriarchal. What was it like for you um, as a woman filming, an American woman filming with sort of your key character, also a woman, and also, I like the way you were able to capture the ordinary lives of, you know, many Nigerians, especially the women. And what was all that like? So I think one of the exciting things about making documentary films today are, is that the cameras have gotten a lot smaller, a lot less obtrusive. And we filmed with a wide array of cameras, but we really tried to be under the radar um, as much as possible. And... I had a team of Nigerians working on the film who were incredibly supportive of me as a filmmaker and of my vision. And I think uh, part of that is largely thanks to um, Tandi Kalani, who was the co-producer of the film, who introduced me to some of the key crew members um, in Nigeria who participated in the film. So I would say that it was challenging. It was something that um, I never would have been able to take on had I not felt complete trust in the Nigerian support of the film in terms of in the enclave of the people who were working on the film. I just felt a determination. And in some ways, you know, the, the way that films are often made in Nigeria, in Nollywood, and the kind of, you know, determination to make them against all obstacles, on lower budgets. A lot of that is very conducive to documentary filmmaking. And one of the things that I think is really important in Nigeria, and in fact, everywhere else, in order to get that sense of life and energy in a film, I feel like you have to have a certain amount of spontaneity. You also have to have a certain amount of a clean slate, of that you have a vision, you have an aesthetic, you have a look that you're going for in the film. But within that, you're also trying to capture that lightning you know, that is there at a moment where you just don't expect that. And in order to have that, you have to be hyper alert and hyper vigilant and kind of in those environments at the times. I mean, I was in the film very determined to capture sort of dawn through night and the nocturnal world in Nigeria was something that I found beautiful and fascinating and just a whole other side of Nigeria that a lot of people who are not Nigerian don't see because they don't go out at night and they're worried about doing that and you're advised not to do it. So I did things that were um, maybe not you know, typical of people who are visiting Nigeria from outside, but that was really because of 
the Nigerian support of the making of the film and also the collaboration. I think when you see this film, um, the archival footage in it was shot by Nigerians uh, and some of it comes from you know, French archives or BBC or CNN archives or different archives and some of it comes from the videographer that traveled with MKO Abiola on the campaign. But that Nigerian vision is actually interwoven into the film. So it's not a film that I was trying to make from my perspective as an American woman. It was a story that I was trying to tell as eloquently as possible using you know, cinematic language and like a quilt or like a mosaic, taking these incredibly beautiful tiles or pieces of, in some cases, forgotten footage. I mean, the Nigerian footage that the videographer shot had never been logged. I mean, when we first got it, it was, you know, 40 videotapes. I had to go through them for like three weeks with my editor just trying to find the images of Kudarat because there was nothing that said and this time code is this or this time code is that and just finding these fleeting seconds of her and those moments that you would call kind of offstage moments not when she was performing not when she knew she was being filmed but when she thought she wasn't being filmed and the camera happened to wander onto her observing her husband or observing a dinner party or observing a speech or observing a situation and getting inside the complexity of her as a woman and her thoughts, all of those things were equally, I think, important in the making of the film and in kind of my vision as a woman directing a film in terms of wanting to capture the female characters with depth and also wanting to go beyond what's safe or what is considered the ideal role for a woman to portray in a film in terms of both beauty but also in terms of you know, the pressure on women in terms of their marriages to hold up a certain fairy tale marriage ideal or not to kind of voice any kind of uh, dissatisfaction with their marriage. I thought the things that Hofstadt said about the marriage, I thought the things that Kudarat had told Hofstadt, and I thought observing Kudarat in that marriage lent a whole other dimension of dissent and of um, the pro-democracy movement and its link to the women's empowerment movement in Nigeria to the film. And I'm hoping that you know, when people are looking back on the pro-democracy movement in Nigeria, they see it as inextricably tied to the women's empowerment movement. Thank you. And for me, so talking about women's empowerment and, and, and the pro-democracy movement and, and looking at, as you've reminded us, of the history, I mean, you know, I think back even in the independence uh, movement, you know, prominent women and also less prominent women, uh, women whose roles have never been acknowledged. I mean, what's your assessment of the current position of women in Nigerian society and particularly in political participation and are you hopeful? You see, I think the, the ni ni women's participation in politics in Nigeria has improved. It's improved for a, a variety of reasons. I mean, there's part of meeting certain charters, global charters. There's also, you know, the pressure from women groups to include women. And there's just the actual fact of women being more successful openly, you know, particularly in business and all of that. And there are other ways in which women get into power. You could marry power, you know, or be very close to power and you will be publicly in power. Um, and I have no judgment on this because I think it's important that, you know, whichever way, they get, what I say all the time, you have a lot of useless men in power. Why not have a few useless women? You know, doesn't bother me either way, you know, so let's get them in there as many as possible. Let's make it normal. I think the challenge is Nigeria, to a large extent, is a failed state 
because it's a failed state, certain infrastructure, certain processes, certain systems that should protect the most vulnerable in any such society is compromised. Because it's a challenged state, that's a nicer way of saying that it is a failed state. It becomes difficult to ensure rights of women in a country like that. As I said, Nigeria became patriarchal. The Nigerian society we've come to understand we had in the past, and it wasn't a Nigerian society because of course Nigeria didn't exist then, was a society that I certainly know as a Yoruba woman, and there's vestiges of it left, that w marriage and all of that was not paramount. You know, in Yoruba land, for example, women were given, accorded honor on the basis of enterprise and motherhood, and you did not have to produce a child of your own because as long as you are able to mother other people's children, you were a mother. So in, your, in the annals of Yoruba's anthology, the history, you do not have women called the equivalent of missus. Women were called mother of their enterprise. So if you sold Pepe, you will be mother who sold Pepe. If your daughter or your son's name was Kola or Kemi, you would be mother of Kemi or mother of Kola. This mother of Kola and Kemi who sold Pepe usually would have a husband, but he was not the determinant of her identity, and so she wasn't called his wife in that way. There wasn't a Mrs. label. It was very powerful and very important. I mean, all of this because of, as I said, Christianity, Islam, and poverty that's come from the ways in which Nigeria has been run badly through this. It's made the lot of women very difficult in Nigeria. To change that, you have to go back to the very roots. Until we begin to redesign Nigeria in terms of the political structure and the economic structure that has allows prosperity, that will strengthen the other institutions that make a democracy, i.e. the judiciary. You heard us talking about the failure of the judiciary, the, the judiciary, the legislature, the executive, all of them becoming independent you know, and strong, then you cannot protect the right of anybody, especially the most vulnerable. And in a patriarchal such, such as Nigeria, women are vulnerable. Thank you all very much for coming. And thank you, Joanna, and thank you for me. I'm Shanida Scotland. I'm from Doc Society. We support and fund um, feature documentaries. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be here tonight, to be able to sit with you and talk with Isabel, director of the film, and Doris Munoz, and Jax Haupt. Please come to the stage. Hello. Isabel, I wanted to start with you, if I could. One of the things that really struck me about the film is very much um, a sense of shared experience. But it, it felt like I was getting a real important sense of directorial voice here, and I wondered if, if that was intentional and you wanted to be that vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think making this film um, and the work that I continue to do is kind of reactionary to journalism. I think that, like... I've been doing journalism for a while now, and you, there's this aspiration towards objectivity, and I just, I've, I'm really convinced that it's just like a fallacy, and so, meaning that there is, it's impossible to have objectivity in storytelling. Um, and so, I really tried to lean into that um, in this film, both in its visuality and its tone, but going back to this idea of trust, like, you know, it's a really difficult thing to navigate um, as a documentary 
director, as a documentary participant, but I think one thing we all shared in common was kind of like a shared understanding of the goals for the film, which is ultimately to like have a story where our community feels represented um, and that some of like these struggles feel represented. I think we all come from very, very different backgrounds and um, Latinidad in, in the US is just not a monolith. It's, it's very diverse. Um, you know, Jacks grew up in Texas. I grew up in Connecticut. Doris grew up um, in LA. And, you know, I think that there are moments, there are so many things that we can connect to and relate to. Um, and I think the central thing is the guilt and pressure of being the child of immigrants and the responsibility of that. Um, and the way that you struggle with that day to day. And I think at least that was my objective in making this film was to show that like, like we're all kind of going through that. Um, I'm going through it as a filmmaker, you know, Doris and Jax are going through it in music, but you, you carry a lot of pressure when your parents have made sacrifices and regardless of what the specificity of your experience, like to immigrate very, broadly, I mean, and also very specifically means to like leave your home. And that decision is an, uh, a, it's a difficult one, it's a traumatic one, and it's one that carries implications intergenerationally. Um, and it's something that we all carry. And so I think, yeah, I mean, when it comes to the question around trust, I mean, I'd, I, I think it's more that we all kind of had a shared understanding of that one thing. Um, I, <laughs> I wanted to give the audience a chance to ask any questions. Are there any questions at all? Um, yeah, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful film. And um, I was going to, I guess, ask a question to everyone, but specifically I noticed that Isabel not only directed and you know was a producer on the film, but was the cinematographer on the film. And I know as a documentary filmmaker that's taking on a lot and it's also amazing for a female filmmaker to be doing that and I thought just wanted to shout that out for everyone but yeah I guess I wanted to ask um, Isabel how that factored into your own process um, was that a definite decision in terms of being able to essentially like not make such an impact like Doris was saying in terms of as you're entering the world being very careful about who you were bringing in but yeah I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been very used to working um, with a very small team. Um, and, you know, obviously, I had so much producing support, um, you know, Tabs and Yesenia. And coming from a background of d shooting things alone or working with small crews, like, that was something that was so crucial in terms of kind of building out a team, is making sure to have a really strong production team. Beyond that, like, uh, for me, the cinematographer, so I, I came from a photojournalism background. I wanted to be a photographer. I'm a failed photojournalist. Um, and I just love imagery and how it can communicate emotion and the importance of how things are shot, you know? Um, I was really preoccupied with that, and I think that a lot of the intimacy that you feel in the film is a result of me, you know, shooting a lot of it by myself. But then, you know, I had two other cinematographers working with me, Aura and Louise, Aura de Kornfeld and Louisa Conlon, and they're just really, we're really good friends. They're like two of my best friends. Um, and it just kind of allowed for an, I just trust them. Like when Doris got the news about 
her family, I, I just called Aura because I just trust her. I mean, we've been working together for years. And same goes for Louisa. Like, a lot of what we shot with Jax was with Louisa, a lot of, like, the beautiful imagery. And I don't, it wasn't, it really wasn't intentional for it to be women, all women. I just, I just, I just, like, tend to think that they're the best. <laughs> um, <laughs> not women, I mean, yes, also, but, um, but just, like, them specifically, they're just amazing cinematographers. Like, I wasn't even trying to make a point. They just were the best ones for the job. But I just, I really wanted it to feel, I wanted the whole process to feel really intimate. And so, yeah, I think a lot of what we shot was just done either just with me for a lot of the parts during COVID with um, Doris, because we were also really sensitive to that um, and just trying to minimize the crew. And then also just, you know, as as the shoots got a little bit more complex, just building out a bigger team, but always keeping it as slim as possible. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's a beautiful question and answer to end on. Can you join me in giving a round of applause to Isabel, Doris and Jacks?